Last week, we began to look at the content of what we call the Lord's Prayer. But prior to that, we saw that in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching his disciples in the famous message of his called the Sermon on the Mount. And he's contrasting the self-righteousness of the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and what is true righteousness. Because the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, he calls them hypocrites. Because they talked a good talk, but they didn't walk it. In the areas of fasting and giving and praying, everything they did, they did it so that others could see them doing those things. Look how much I give. Look how often I fast. Look how much I am praying. And he called them hypocrites. And because they did it for the praises of men, he said they had their rewards. But then he instructed, what is the true way of righteousness? So we've been looking this at this in our series, Prayer on Prayer, we call Ask. Uh, we started talking about how Jesus told us to ask for anything in his name, and he would give it to us. That there is something that we are to do, that God has ordained prayer as a means for us to receive the things that he has for us, that he has willed for us. That we've been given the Spirit of God to help us in our intercession because we don't know what to pray for as we ought. And then Jesus teaches his disciples, look, here is then how you should pray. So in contrasting the hypocrites, he says they pray to be seen by others. But not you. You go pray in secret. And Why should we be able to do that? Well, you pray with a sincere heart in secret. The Father, your Father, who sees in secret, will see you, and he'll reward you. He'll reward you with his presence. He'll reward you with answered prayer. And he says, don't pray like the pagans, the Gentiles pray. Because they like to heap up a lot of empty phrases and use many words, thinking that that's how their gods are going to hear them and answer them. But you can take comfort. Your father knows what you have need of even before you ask. Isn't that awesome? And then he says, Pray then, pray then like this. And what follows is an exquisite prayer. A beautiful prayer that the church has been praying from that time forward to this day. A prayer that can be prayed just as it is, word for word. And it's a prayer that also can be used as a pattern, an outline for us to pray. A pattern that we find is simple and concise and comprehensive. And last week, I shared with you the structure of this prayer. There's three simple parts to the outline of this prayer. And if you struggle with how to pray, you know, like, how how do I begin to even pray or or to know what to pray for? I want to encourage you, use the pattern in this prayer. Jesus gave it to us, right? Uh, You can't go wrong praying this way. And from this prayer, we learned that we don't have to use a lot of words. I mean, here's the application of what the very thing Jesus had just finished saying. Don't pray like that with so many words and empty phrases. Just pray like this. Simple words, simple language. You don't need flowery language. You know, over the years, people have asked how to pray. I don't know how to use big words. There's no big words here, right? You don't have to use big words. You don't have to use a lot of words. Simple, concise prayers. Uh, But this is a framework and outline for us there. And the structure I share with you is very simple. There's a preface, right? There's an introduction, a beginning. We talked about that last week. Our Father in heaven. That is the preface to this prayer. Tells us who we're coming before in prayer. 
we're coming before the king of the universe, the Lord of glory, the creator, the God of all things, the all-powerful, all-knowing God. But guess what? He's your heavenly father who loves you, who cares about you, who provides for you, who protects you. That's who you're coming before in prayer. A God who is a father who is always willing and ready and able to help you and me in our time of need. And then we have the petitions of this prayer. He said there's six petitions that are found in the Lord's Prayer, and it's broken into two categories. The first is God's concerns, and we're going to look at those today. And the second are our concerns, our needs, the things that we ought to be praying for. And the prayer concludes with praise. Now, as I said last time, we don't find that in our translation here. Uh, but it is one that the church has used from the earliest days on forward through tradition. The early church fathers incorporated this concluding word of praise. Some translations do include it. And next week I'll explain why that is. But it's very simple. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But today we're going to focus on God's concerns in the Lord's Prayer. So let's read that from God's Word. Hear the words of the Lord, Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as I stated in the the two categories of petitions, this first category contains the first three petitions. And our Lord, in teaching his disciples, instructs us here that the first request that we are to make concern God. They're about God. God's concerns are of a higher priority than our own. Normally, when we pray, we kind of start the other way, don't we? Lord, here's what I need. God, help me in this. But the Lord's Prayer teaches us something different here. Before I ask for anything for myself, before I ask for anything for someone else, right, I must pray about God's concerns. And these concerns are about God's name, about God's kingdom, And about God's will. Now, the order of the Lord's Prayer, beginning with God's concerns, reminds us of something very important that you and I need to continually remind ourselves of, and that is that you and I are not the center of the universe. We're not. You are not the most pivotal thing in this universe, you are not the most important thing to God in this universe. He is. We're not. Now, it's not that your needs are unimportant. I mean, we've talked about that. Why else would Jesus tell us to come to God in prayer if our needs did not matter to God? He is our Father. Just like a loving Father is there for His children, wants to help them meet their needs, provide for them, take care of them, protect them, right? We have a loving and perfect Heavenly Father to do that. It's just that our needs are not the most ultimate thing when it comes to prayer. God's concerns are. Those are the ultimate things. Now, if you notice, this kind of parallels the Ten Commandments. 
in the Ten Commandments, right, what is the first order of duty of man is, is, is our duty and obligation to God. Then it's our duty and obligation to others. But it's always and always will be God first. And many of the Old Testament prayers mimic and pattern themselves after this particular form. God's praise and glory first, then our petitions. Think of some of the great prayers in the Bible, like David's prayer uh, of, of consecration when it came to the construction uh, of the temple in First Chronicles 29. Read that. What do you find him there? He's glorifying God, praising God, and then he's asking for things. We see that also in Solomon's prayer of dedication after the completion of the temple. Same thing. He's acknowledging God first, glorifying God, and then he asks the things that he's going to ask God for. There's a great prayer of Hezekiah the king uh, in in, uh, 2 Kings 19. There we find Jerusalem being surrounded by the Assyrian armies, right? It's a very dire moment for the people of God. And Hezekiah comes before the Lord in prayer. But you'll see the same pattern there. Instead of him just immediately crying for God to deliver him, he's glorifying and praising God, right? And then he expresses the aim of his petition for deliverance with this beautiful line in 2 Kings 19.19. He prays, so now, O Lord our God, save us. Please, from his hand, listen, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God alone. Isn't that amazing? His aim was God's glory first. It wasn't just, Lord, save us so we're not killed. Save us so we don't die here and be destroyed. No, his passion was for the glory of God, for his name and his fame to be known throughout all the nations of the earth, that he alone is the one true God. That's the biblical pattern of prayer. It's always chiefly concerned with God's glory first and foremost. A.W. Pink in his teaching on the Lord's Prayer expresses it this way. Our primary duty in prayer is to disregard ourselves and to give God the preeminence in our thoughts, desires, and supplications. Right? It's, It's putting ourselves last and putting him first. That's why the very preface of this prayer, our Father in heaven, orients us immediately to the one we are praying to. And it reminds us that the aim of our prayer is always God's glory first and foremost. That comes before, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, help me with these things. Lord, meet these needs. We are constrained in our asking For our personal needs by what must be the overarching concern and driving passion of our life. And that is to be the glory of God. That's what it's all about, brothers and sisters. And when it comes to prayer, that is the chief aim. The glory of God. Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer here. By the way it starts with these first petitions concerning God's concerns. That our our motto needs to be like that of John the Baptist. Right? When his disciples came to him and said, look, what's going on, man? Everybody's following Jesus now. All of your disciples are going after him. What does John the Baptist say? He must increase and I must decrease. That should be our posture always, brothers and sisters, when it comes to prayer. Above my own needs is God's glory. It's God's glory. 
So let's look at these three petitions. Uh, We are going to conclude our time after the message today by coming back into small group prayer as we've been doing. Um, So get ready for that. All right. But let's look at this first petition here. And it's concerning God's name. Jesus says to pray, hallowed be your name. Now, many think that this part of the prayer is a declaration that God's name is to be hallowed. But the grammatical structure is actually in the form of a petition. It is something a disciple of Christ is to ask for. What does the word hollow mean? The word hollow means to sanctify, to set apart. In fact, the, the, the root of this word is the same one where we get the word saints from, holy ones. It is about the holiness of God, the, sancti- the sanctity of God's name means to set apart his name, to treat it as holy, to reverence his name. God's holiness is everything that sets him apart from his creation. Everything that sets him apart from you and me. He is holy. And Jesus was teaching us to pray, Lord, may your name be sanctified. May your name be set apart. May your name be treated as holy and reverenced. God's name. Now, we don't think about names the same way the ancient Israelites and the ancient people used to think about names. Names mattered a lot. Names meant something so profound, right? We've talked about this before. People look for baby names, like what's the trending baby names, the cool baby names out there? Or we may name our child after someone in our family, a father, a grandfather, a grandmother, etc., but, but when we talk about God's name, we're not just talking about a particular term or label that we assign to God to call him by that thing, okay? To speak God's name is to speak of him and all of his attributes and characteristics and qualities. It's about the whole character of God, right? That's why his name is significant. That's why his name is to be reverenced and to be treated as holy and sacred Because he is, okay? Think about when God wanted to make himself known to the people he chose for himself and that he was about to rescue and deliver. In the third chapter of Exodus, God speaks to Moses and he says this, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered Throughout all generations. Now, there is so much there, which we don't have the time to get into. But he says, hey, if the people ask you who it is that is sending you, what did he say? Say to them, I am who I am. I am who I am. Now, that's not a noun. That's actually a verbal phrase in the Hebrew here. Because God is is indicating something about his being In this declaration he makes to Moses saying, tell them I am who I am 
is the one who is sending you. And though our translation is in the present tense, I am who I am, it's actually in the future tense in the Hebrew language. Now, this is a nuance of this ancient Hebrew grammar, which I am not an expert in whatsoever. But it is something profound that is happening in the statement that God makes and then the declaration of the name that he gives, the Lord here, okay? So in the future tense, it's I will be who I will be. In fact, there are some translations who actually render it that way. We translate it into the present tense, but it's in the future tense. What's going on here? And listen to how God describes himself as the God of your fathers in the past tense. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yet it's also stated in the future tense, I am who I am. What is he saying here? What is he revealing? Well, he is revealing himself to be the eternally self-sufficient, self-existent God. The God who was, the God who is, the God who forever will be. Then he says, don't just tell him, I am sent you. This eternally self-existent God, self-sufficient God, who always was, is, and always will be. But he says, and tell, say to them, the Lord. Now, in our English Bibles, we translate it as the Lord. But this is the Hebrew name that God gave to his people, which we Now, it's transliterated into English, and we pronounce it as Yahweh or Jehovah, okay? The truth is, we really don't even know how to pronounce that name. That's our best educated guess by biblical scholars on how to pronounce the name of God here that he revealed himself to to his people. Um, But here's what we know about when this name was given to the people of God and how they treated it. It was the holy name of God the covenant name that God revealed himself to his people by, was so holy to them that they couldn't even pronounce it. They wouldn't even pronounce it out loud. When they wrote it out, they would leave the vowels. When the scribes wrote out the Torah, they omitted the vowels and just left the consonants. So what's happened, what happened over time is the Hebrews forgot how to pronounce those vowels. In fact, his name was so holy, they substituted names instead of Yahweh, or however it was pronounced. They used the word Adonai, the name Adonai, which meant Lord or Master. Okay? That's how holy the name of God was. That's how it was to be treated and reverenced by them. Um, over time, uh, if, if, if a Hebrew was, a Jew was having a conversation with someone casually and they were referring to God they would use the term Hashem, which simply means the name. That's how they refer to God, Hashem, the name. He revealed himself as I am who I am, the name, the Lord, Yahweh, to the people of God, right? It's profound, and there's so much, there's so much there, but that's how sacred and holy God's name is to the people of God. When God wanted to give a clearer description of what his holy covenant name means, listen to how he described it to Moses when Moses went up to Mount Sinai with the tablets, right, to receive the commandments of the Lord, to to speak to the people of God. Listen to what God tells him there in Exodus chapter 34, 5 through 7. And I want you to, later on today, go home and meditate on this passage because this is just profound. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Think about that. 
And what does God do? And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. Now, this is interesting here. This is not in the first person. This is actually in the third person. What he's saying is, Yahweh is. Yahweh is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity uh, and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Isn't that awesome? He comes before Moses in this manifestation, right, this cloud, right, and all of the imagery, you know, that we know about surrounding the descending of the Lord's presence upon the mountain and Moses going up. And what does the Lord do? He proclaims his name before him. He says, Yahweh is, twice repeated, Yahweh is. The people of God can know that this holy God, right, who rescued them from out of slavery in Egypt, the God who is with them and protecting them, right, as they go through the wilderness on the way to the land that he has promised them, he is steadfast and faithful. He forgives sin, right, the sin of his covenant people. He is merciful. He's gracious. But he's also a God of justice who will punish the evildoer, the transgressor. The sinner, the name of God is the revelation of himself to his people. It is no trite thing. What do we have enshrined in the third commandment? How God commands his people to treat his name. Third commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Do you think this is important to God? Should it be important to us? Absolutely, right? Again, Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, okay? When you see Lord in your Old Testament, that is the name of God, Yahweh. And he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The name of the Lord is a big deal. It is to be reverenced. It is to be treated as holy. And as God's people, you and I must be concerned for the name and glory of God. And think about how flippantly we talk about God sometimes. How casually we kind of throw his name there. Not to mention how it's used at times. Not only is it blasphemed, not only is it profaned, but even God's people have no problem saying, OMG, and and talk so very casually and flippantly using the name of God. But you and I are to take care to reverence his name, to treat it as holy and not profane it with by using it in in a careless manner, in an unworthy manner and, and, and with empty talk. Read through Jesus's prayer in John 17. How concerned Jesus was for the name of God. He says he manifested the name of God to those that he gave him. He tells, in his prayer there, he tells of how he had kept the disciples in God's name. And how he made his name known. The name of the Lord. 
So when we come to this portion of the prayer, right, where we're to pray, hallowed be your name, what do we mean by that? Well, in our Baptist Catechism, question 108, the question is, what do we pray for in the first petition? This is the summation of that. In the first petition, which is hallowed be your name, we pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him in all the ways in which he makes himself known. And that he would dispose all things to his own glory. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we're praying for God's name to be hallowed in our life. In our own lives. To be treated as holy. To be set apart. To be reverenced. Because as God's people, we don't want to see his name profaned. Or disregarded and dishonored by the way we treat his name. We're praying that we would not bring reproach to his name. We're praying that his name would be honored, reverenced, and glorified by others because they see him honored, reverenced, and glorified in us. Think about that for a moment. We're praying, hallowed be thy name. We're saying, God, when people see how I treat your name, it will cause them to treat your name in the same way. Conversely, that's true as well. If we're not hollowing his name, if they see in us a disregard, a disrespect, little to no reverence for the name of God, well, they will begin. They will treat and feel free to treat God's name the same way. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we are praying for God to receive all the honor, the respect, the reverence, the fear, and the glory that he alone is worthy of. And we're also praying for God's name to be hallowed and glorified in every sphere and domain of life. Do you hallow God's name? How do you treat the name of God? When others hear how you talk about God, does this cause them, does this evoke in them a desire to reverence and worship and glorify God? Or because of the disrespect and disregard you have for the name of God, Does it cause them to profane and blaspheme his name? You and I should be praying this way. This should be part of our prayer. God, help me to treat your name as holy. Because it is. Help me to reverence your name. Because I know who you are and how you've revealed yourself to me. Help others to see the way I reverence you. And may that cause them to glorify, honor, worship, and reverence you the same way. Jesus taught us to pray. Hallowed be your name. The second petition is concerning God's kingdom. Your kingdom come. So while the first petition has to do with honoring God and the glory of God himself, these next two have to do with the means by which God's name will be hallowed. Okay? The second petition here is your kingdom come. Now, if you read the Gospels, we see that this is the most prominent theme in the teaching of Jesus Christ. He came to announce the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God. He started his ministry publicly by telling people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God are synonymous terms here. Okay, It's a prominent theme. And what does the word kingdom mean? The word kingdom means the domain or the dominion of the king. 
It talks about the extent to the kingdom. A king's kingdom is the extent of everywhere that the king rules, the extent, the domain of his rules. So when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about where God rules, everywhere that God is king. Now, wouldn't you say that God is king over everything? Yes, and not exactly. <laughs> so we have to ask then, where is the kingdom of God? Right? We were to talk about <clears throat> what is the territory over which this king rules. You might be able to point on a map and go, it's, it's right here. It's defined by these particular boundaries. So where exactly is the kingdom of God? Well, I'll give you a short answer here. The kingdom of God, it's present wherever the rule of Christ is established and Jesus is enthroned in the hearts of men and women. Okay? Wherever the rule of Christ is established. So now we're talking about wherever the people of God are. It's everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ. Everyone who has experienced a new birth can now enter the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, okay, by the work of the Spirit, right? So Jesus is their Lord and King. That is where the kingdom of God is present. So when you think about what Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of God is, is, is at hand, he's talking about the availability, the accessibility of the kingdom of God that was now present, right, because he was manifesting the very kingdom of God through his teaching, through his works, right? He came doing miracles, right? This, this now is the demonstration of what the kingdom of God looks like as people are healed, as demons are cast out, as he's uh, announcing and calling people to repent and to follow him. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, okay? That's what he came announcing. And today, wherever Jesus is believed, wherever Jesus is loved, Wherever Jesus is obeyed, God's kingdom is present. The kingdom of heaven is right here. That's why Jesus even said the kingdom of heaven is where? Within you. But not just any you. It's those who've believed upon him. Those who have his spirit. And though it's present now, it's partial. It's not fully present, as it will be at the consummation of the ages, at the Lord's return. We've talked about this before. This terminology is used a lot, right? It's this already not yet reality about the kingdom of God, about the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Jesus reigns now. Amen? Amen. He reigns now. But we don't experience the fullness of his reign in the reality of what we see and experience in our world today. And we're not going to until that day, until his return. So it's partial now, but it will be completed fully and finally then. So the writers of the New Testament have a few ways that they, they kind of help us see this. In Hebrews 2.8, you don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 2.8 tells us that everything has been made subject to Christ. What things? Everything. Everything really and truly has been made subject to Christ, yet you and I don't presently see everything in subjection to him, do we? Is every heart, human person, subject to him? No. Are the kingdoms of this world all fully subject to him? 
Not presently. Right? We don't see that now. Yet, the reality is that they are. I know. We don't understand that fully. But that's evidence of the already not yet reality of the kingdom of God and Jesus' full righteous reign now, yet not fully realized until the day. Now, when Paul teaches about the resurrection on the last day, he, address, he already addresses here in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 the already not yet reality of Christ's reign. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. He writes, Then comes the end, when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. All right, so he's talking about this future event, this future reality, the end of all things, the return of Christ, the coming of Christ, the resurrection from the dead, right? Uh, after he destroys every rule and authority and power. But look what he writes in verse 25. For he must reign. When's he reigning? It's right now. Until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Uh, it's a done deal. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And you're like, that sounds like a riddle. <laughs> a lot of subjection, who, where, what, when, how. But he's telling us here, when does Christ reign? Now. He is reigning now. Not then, He's reigning now, and he's going to continue to reign until, until the end, right? But his reign is not fully consummated until, it says here, he has put all his enemies under his feet. And he's telling us death is the final enemy to be destroyed and defeated. And then he's going to deliver this consummated kingdom to his God and Father, to God the Father. The kingdom will be complete when all things then are subject to to Christ, even though they've already been subjected to Christ. Okay? I know that's a lot. You're like, it's Sunday morning. That's a lot. That I haven't had lunch yet. I don't fully understand. It's okay. But it's a way that we're, we can grab a hold of, of this aspect of saying, your king, why do we have to pray your kingdom come if his kingdom's already here? Because it is here, but it is not fully realized. You're not, but it will be on that day. And every true disciple of Jesus should be longing for that. Wanting and desiring for his kingdom to grow and expand. Look at the vision Jesus gives to his disciples in what we call the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. 18 through 20, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that sounds like he's the king, right? He doesn't say he's been given some authority, does he? He says he's been giving, given all authority. All authority, all means all. We don't need to parse this in the Greek and to learn what it, all is all. He's given all authority. That sounds like he is the king and reigns over everything. And then he tells them, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he is the king who's been given all authority and then he sends out his disciples. He commissions them as ambassadors of his kingdom. 
right? To go announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then to make disciples. What are disciples? These are not converts. Disciples are followers. They actually obey the king. They are subjects of the king, obeying his teachings and commands. And he says to do what? Make disciples of all nations, of all people groups. He's casting a vision of nations of disciples who worship and obey him as king. That's how the kingdom of heaven grows and advances, right, until that day when it's fully consummated. That's what Jesus taught in the parables about the kingdom of God. Let's look at these two in Matthew chapter 13, 31 through 33. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Then he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hidden three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And he's teaching here about this, the incremental growth of the kingdom of God. Think about where, where it started and think about where it is now. A handful of disciples, 2,000 plus years later, how many disciples? We don't know. The kingdom of heaven has grown. It's advancing. It's being enlarged. Why? Because, because the good news is taking root in the hearts of people who are responding in faith to Jesus Christ, who are born again. Born into the kingdom of God and a part of God's kingdom. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king of their lives. And the kingdom of heaven is advancing. So what do we pray for when we pray your kingdom come? Well, again, looking at question 109, catechism. What do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, which is your kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Think about that. When we pray your kingdom come, we are praying that Christ's rule will be extended more and more now. Because he is reigning now. Because he is king now. And we're also praying that Christ's rule will be completed at his return then. Because all things will be made subject to him. When we pray your kingdom come, we are praying for the increase of his church. We want to see more people come to faith in Christ. Amen? Amen. That's how the kingdom grows. And we want to see his church preserved and kept, which he has promised to do. So we pray your kingdom come. When we pray your kingdom come, we are praying that God's rule will be increasingly acknowledged and obeyed by his people. What's sad is that his own people many times do not acknowledge his rule and reign. And that is evidenced by the way they live without a care or concern about the teachings and commands of King Jesus. But to pray your kingdom come is to pray, Lord, I want to obey your teachings and commands. I'm concerned about them. I care about them. I acknowledge them and I'm going to do them, right? We are praying also for the destruction of the enemy's works and everything that opposes God's kingdom. God's kingdom, right, as it advances, it expulses the kingdom of darkness. 
as it goes forth and advances, it is demolishing and defeating and destroying all of the works of the enemy. Everything that opposes the righteous rule and reign of King Jesus as the kingdom grows. We're praying that more and more people will come under that righteous rule and that the nations of the world will surrender to him and recognize Christ's sovereignty and supremacy over all things. Now, when we think nations, we're thinking of countries. This has more in line with all people groups because it's, it's, it's the heavenly vision we see in Revelation, right? As John is caught up to heaven, what does God show him? People from all tribes and languages and tongues worshiping before the throne of God. God is saving people from all people groups everywhere, right? And we want more and more people to come under his rule. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying that God would subdue our family members who resist him, our neighbors, right, our friends. We're praying for his kingdom to come, right, and subdue our nation that continually turns more and more away from the things of God that loves wickedness more than darkness. We want people to repent, surrender, submit, and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ because he alone is king. We're praying that God would do all of this until his kingdom comes in its fullness. Your kingdom come. Do you long for that, brothers and sisters? Do you long for the kingdom of God to advance and be established here on the earth, to see it grow and long for the consummation of that kingdom on that day? The third petition is concerning God's will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this petition closely parallels the last one, okay? Again, this is a means by which God's name is hallowed. What is God's will? When we talk about God's will, what is God's will? Now, oddly enough, there are some who teach that it's, it's not right to pray your will be done at the end of a prayer. I know, and that sounds weird, especially when he's telling us to do that right here. <laughs> but there's people who say, if you, if you are praying and asking God for something, you say, well, the, the Lord, your will be done. It's like, an, it's like expressing a lack of faith and doubt. Now, that's erroneous teaching, but it's pretty prevalent out there, right? Because we say our prayer, a prayer of faith is a prayer that frames worlds and changes atmospheres and environments. And my words have creative force and power. So to say, if it be thy will, is an expression of doubt. That's garbage, okay? Not only is Jesus telling us here, it's teaching his disciples, pray this way. Isn't it what we find Jesus doing himself? How does Jesus pray in the garden? As he is agonizing over what is to come. And he's before his father in prayer. And what does he pray? Lord, be thy will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done but your will be done. Wow. That's what Jesus is praying for here. How can we be? I don't know. I guess we got more faith in Jesus. All right. I don't know. Don't pray that way. Jesus is telling us to pray like this, right? The point that is being driven home at the beginning of this prayer 
is that God's will being done is supremely preferred to God doing our will. Let me say that again because you missed it. The point is, God's will being done is supremely preferred to God doing our will. Again, we've talked about this in prayer. Many times we come to God and saying, God, here's what we want. This is what I will to happen, Lord. The, in the perfect outcome, I think, Lord, concerning this, because I know a little bit more than you do about my life and situation, is that you do this according to how I want it done. And Jesus upends that completely. No, 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 no. Your will be done. Your will be done. J.I. Packer writes concerning here in prayer, Here more clearly than anywhere, the purpose of prayer becomes plain. Not to make God do my will, but to bring my will into line with his. We talked about how people sometimes use prayer, like the way they pray is like they're trying to twist God's arm, right? To manipulate him into doing what they want him to do. And Jesus says, nope, can't do that. First of all, you can't twist God's arm. But the true disciple who has Jesus enthroned in his heart, who is subject to the King of kings and Lord of lords, understands that God's will is preferable to one's own will. That God doing his will is supremely, infinitely better than anything you and I could ever will up in our own imagination. What is God's will? I'll just give you two brief things, and we don't have time to unpack everything concerning the will of God or even teach about it uh, in great detail. But your will be done. God's will is what God commands us to do, isn't it? We know what God's will is. A lot of people are like, I, wanna, I need to know the will of God. Where do you find the will of God, brothers and sisters? In the Word of God. Word of God reveals to us the will of God. There, not only does He reveal what He requires of us, what He commands of us, but also what God desires of us, what pleases the Lord. And He's revealed that to us in His Word. And what He's revealed to us in His Word, you and I are to obey and do. God's will is also what He has sovereignly ordained and decreed. Everything that God has planned, that he's predestined to take place, determined to happen. God's decrees from before anything was made, from before the foundation of the world. God's decrees concerning redemption and salvation and the end of all things. Guess what? That is the will of God in his sovereign will. And that cannot be thwarted. That will be done. All right? So the will of God is either what God has commanded or what God has sovereignly ordained. So Jesus instructs his disciples here. Pray then like this. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The catechism question, what do we pray for in the third position? Answers it this way. In the third petition, which is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray that God, by his grace, would make us able and willing to know Obey and submit to his will in all things as the angels do in heaven. When you and I pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying that you and I, we would obey and be made willing to obey what God has commanded us to do. That we would do it. 
We're praying that we would humbly submit to his will, not for God to submit to ours. We're praying for the grace to accept his will in the face of difficult and tragic circumstances. Isn't this one of the toughest parts and hardest parts? To accept the will of God when we don't understand what's going on in our life or why things happen in our life. Right? Jesus himself prayed in his humanity. If there's another way, let it be so. But he subjected himself to the will of the Father. You and I must do the same thing. And the will of the Father at that moment was for Jesus to be crushed. That's what Isaiah 53 tells us. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And there's things that God wills for our life that you and I, this side of eternity, are not going to make sense of, not going to understand. And we're going to wonder why. A lot of why questions. But ultimately, we say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I don't understand, but I submit myself to you and subject myself to your will. When we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying that he would bring all of history to the glorious conclusion that he has ordained. We're praying that God's will, both commanded and decreed, will be fully accomplished on the earth to the same extent as it is in heaven. Here's what we know about heaven, brothers and sisters. God is perfectly obeyed in heaven. No one is thwarting the will of God or opposing the will of God in heaven. Okay? That is where God is, rightly and perfectly obeyed by the angels who carry out his will. So when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're saying, Lord, just like you are worshipped, adored, obeyed, In heaven, let it be this way on earth. My own life and everywhere around me. On earth as it is in heaven. We want that in our own lives. We should desire to do God's will that way. Do what he commands us to do. And pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just to wrap this up, I I hope you're seeing how the Lord's Prayer, when you with some understanding behind each uh, phrase of these first three petitions here about God's concerns, what does it do? It gives words to us, doesn't it? It gives, it gives breath and meaning to our prayer. That's why Jesus said, pray then like this. It's, it's not just words to repeat word for word, which you can do. It is a prayer to be prayed that way. But, but it's also more than that. It's an outline. It's a framework, a pattern for you and I to see, wow, when we understand something, a little bit of what these phrases are, just the vocabulary grows from there. When we're asking God's name to be hallowed, when we're praying for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, our prayer life begins to soar. It has new meaning. It has purpose. And God's concern becomes the primary and ultimate thing. Concern for his glory Concern for his name, his kingdom, and his will. And that our chief aim, let's not forget this, our chief aim in prayer is to bring glory to his name.